Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Thursday, July 30th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. The Sci-Fi Network, that's spelled S-Y-F-Y, says it generated over a billion Twitter impressions with Sharknado 2. Wow, that is an impressive, impressive number of a metric I had never heard of before, Twitter impressions. Sci-Fi, again, S-Y-F-Y, also says that it got 3.9 million viewers for Sharknado 2. Now remember, a billion is a thousand million, so what that means is less than one half of 1% of the people who saw a Sharknado tweet actually watched Sharknado on the Sci-Fi S-Y-F-Y network. Side note, the rules governing the vowel that's used in the network's name also answer the number one question about the network, which is, do you watch Sci-Fi? Sometimes. Why? And why would anyone watch Sharknado? I understand Sharknado being a popular phenomenon on Twitter. I'm confused why anyone wants to spend time with Sharknado in real life. Sharknado is an awesome word. It is a great word to put in a hashtag. It is wonderful to offer up as a punchline or to make a reference to in order to establish some hip slash ironic slash unpretentious quality about yourself. It sounds like a fun thing to say, but it sounds like a horrible thing to live through. Also, in that exact category, hey, there's a new album by the Lemonheads, or token for a free pizza at Chuck E. Cheese, or the Bush administration. Why would they actually have to make a movie about this? Aren't Twitter impressions enough? Shouldn't it be like the Hard Rock Cafe? Hell yeah, Hard Rock Cafe, I'm going to wear that t-shirt. What, you want me to eat there? What are you, insane? I mean, I so want the following marine animals meet weather phenomenon properties to exist, but in hashtag form only, like uh, cold frontopus, sea cow cyclone, or even intermittent drizzle trout. Yes, clever. Retweet them a thousand times, but just do not make me watch those movies. But I'll favorite them all day. And by favorite, I mean dispose of and forget them and make sure they have zero impact on Ian Ziering's career. Thus concludes the frippery of the show, because today we're going deep, really deep. Well, in the spiel, I'm going to talk about what poker has to teach us about anti-missile defense systems. But first, a long and I think in-depth conversation with an epistemic philosopher about victimhood and knowing. There have been a few recent examples of victimhood, but people being made aware of their victimhood, and they all involve privacy. One was Edward Snowden revealed that the NSA passes around naked photos of people they're spying on. And then there's another story, which is also based on a Snowden revelation, and it's that an Australian woman who Facebook messaged with a lover, and that lover joined the Taliban. So the NSA and the Australian version of the NSA spied on her, monitored their conversation, and later told her that they were spied on. They showed her the correspondences, and the woman says she feels violated. And then there's the story of a 
doctor at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore who photographed his patients naked. There's no indication that he took any pictures of their faces, no indication he shared these pictures with anyone, but there were thousands of pictures and he had thousands of patients. And in fact, there was a class action lawsuit and about 8,000 women are going to be able to split $190 million. The doctor hanged himself after the investigation was launched. So I wanted to back up a bit and I wanted to talk about what privacy means and how do we know when we know we're violated. Aaron Zimmerman joins me. He's an associate professor of philosophy at University of California at Santa Barbara. Hello, Aaron. Hi, how's it going, Mike? It's going well. Before we even start about the specifics, tell me a little bit about epistemology and uh, what it means and how it can apply to examples like privacy. Well, it's a very broad field. It's the study of knowledge more generally, and that includes philosophy of science, because that's our paradigm of knowledge, at least uh, contemporarily, and, uh, but also how you know facts about your own mind, how you know about the minds of others, and various special kinds of knowledge, like mathematics. And uh, related to that, although it borders with ethics, it are issues about you know, knowing about other people and other people knowing about you and how that impacts on uh, what's good for you and, and a life that you want to live. So let's take one of the specific cases. Let's talk about the women who are getting $190 million from this Johns Hopkins doctor. So this doctor has a bunch of patients, and there's a group of patients who were photographed, and there's probably some patients who weren't, and it's not clear that the patients will ever know which group they were in. Is that a further complication as to, you know, the ethics of telling everyone who might have been a patient about this? I'm not sure. I think that you what you want to do is tell them that. You want them to have full information that, you know, we're unsure and this is the probability. Um, again, any attempt to make that decision for them is smacks of paternalism. So there's this idea that, you know, you 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 want to avoid doing them any injury until it's clear that they were, in fact, photographed and having them worry about whether or not they're photographed um, is in some way causing them harm or at least discomfort. And the upshot of this is there very well might be someone, I don't know how she'll be able to tell if she was or wasn't in the picture, but there very well might be someone who say, who will say, you know, I wish I had never known. So what do we do with that? Say you're just a, uh, you're just collateral damage. You're just a consequence of everything you've been talking about. We don't want to engage in paternalism and we have a democratic society. I wonder how many people fall into that group. I mean, there's the issue. I wish I had never been photographed. That's probably most of them. Sure. And then there's the question of, of, you know, is it a harm to you if you are photographed or if you're surveilled upon by somebody and you never know about it and no one else knows about it? So it doesn't impact your experience. And, I, you know, that's sort of a deep philosophical issue. The ancient philosophers, Aristotle tells us, were long debated about whether it facts that, you know, about, you know, events that unfold after you die have an impact on whether or not your life was a good one or not. And some people thought, how could that possibly be? Whereas others thought, you know, if someone takes credit for your achievements or your family all dies and everything that you achieved goes to rot, you know, a month after you died, then in some sense, your life was not as a good, not as good as it could have been. And if you toil in obscurity and then a month after you die, you suddenly become famous, then your life turns out to have been better than it otherwise would have been. Um, and people would, you know, if you ask them, they want those things to happen. They want 
their achievements and their progeny to flourish after they die. So we don't just care about our experience. And perhaps the most, you know, salient uh, depiction of that is uh, Robert Nozick's famous experience machine, where he imagines a machine, a virtual reality machine that you can enter into, and it's programmed so that after you enter into the machine, you entirely forget that you're in it, and it can deliver you a course of experience which is much greater than anything you could hope for in reality. So if you want to be a basketball star, you'll suddenly be able to make that happen. And you can program it so that there's a narrative arc to your life, but you'll triumph in the end over great adversity and so on. And so, you know, people, if you ask them, would you sign up to go into an experience machine knowing full well that you would have an experience much greater than you could have in reality, people balk at that. They don't really want to go into it for the most part. And that shows that we do attach, I think, an importance to reality and not just our experience of it. We want things to be a certain way, regardless of whether or not we're going to know about it or, or feel it. Right. And that's, I think, the creepiness people get when they think about some doctor looking at pictures of their private parts, you know, uh, and they don't want that to happen even if they, they weren't to know about it. So you're right. There's that separate issue of, you know, trying to decide on behalf of somebody whether they would or would not want to know the facts in question. But that's in some way an undecidable or impossible thing to uh, figure out. And first of all, Zem, how do you know that we haven't opted into the reality machine right now? Oh, yeah, because uh, you had to fight traffic in Culver City is the answer. <laughs> and yeah, no one would have put that in my experience machine. In fact, I would, I would put in my contract, no experience of traffic. Uh, <laughs> now, let's go on to the case of the Australian woman whose 800 pages of uh, love letters with her and her lover were revealed to her. A little bit different from the doctor, although she is in the category of person who she never knew she was harmed, and then one day she found out about it. But in the doctor's case, there were only nefarious reasons for doing what he did. In the NSA's case, you know, even the woman said, I could understand why they'd want to monitor the uh, communications of the Taliban. Does that change anything to you? I think it does. I mean, in that case, the people's discomfort with the case is that they kept and uh, kept on file um, scores of exchanges that had obviously nothing to do with the Taliban or uh, radical Islam or attend political violence of any kind. So, you know, it's just like love letters and salacious messages and, you know, uh, salacious images and pictures and so on. And you would think that somebody could separate the wheat from the chaff and dispose of that stuff. But I guess, that, you know, on the NSA's uh, side or, 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 you know, international surveillance in general, um, they don't want to prejudge perhaps what's relevant and what's not. And they'd be kicking themselves if they got rid of something which was coded or I don't, I don't know what the justification is. But if there is a, uh, a, a grounds for complaint there, it's not for the initial spying because he was, in fact, trying to uh, join up with the Taliban. Now, she says, I'm not against the fact that my privacy was violated. Let's stop there. Um even if justify, the NSA would say we were justified, do you think her privacy was violated or did the justification mean that her privacy wasn't exactly violated, that you shouldn't, it shouldn't be privacy? There's a legal issue there. I mean, but is there a moral right? Uh, that might, you know, the idea being that there are rights which are, you know, 
predate or prefigure or come before in some sense or conceptually prior to the legal rights. And we evaluate laws based on whether they protect the rights we ought to have, mm-hmm. those rights being the moral rights. Um, if you take that idea seriously, and some people are skeptical about it, there's a question about whether a right to privacy is among them. And you know, you, you don't want to be anachronistic here because for many, many years, you know, for the bulk of human history, we've lived in tribes and one-room houses and so on. And there hasn't been privacy. And there's a question of what, how undesirable that is and which parts of human existence it makes impossible. But given the state that we're in, I think people do want to have, you know, some area to protect uh, their privacy. If only, you know, they saying as everyone closes the door when they go to the bathroom, those basic bodily physical things which, you know, show our animal nature that we try to hide from each other so we can have a civilized uh, relationship with one another that's not uh, reduced to uh, the animal. I think, you know, sex and romance are, are among those things. If you're going to have anything which you have a right to have protected from others, it's going to be your body and things that you own, including your body. And, you're, you know, you, you have a right to share that with others as you do or do not wish. So it's a, it's a complicated question, uh, but, you know, do we have a right to communications, fair, open communications? I would hope, but it probably is just within a community. And since she's in Australia and the spy agencies aren't, it's not clear that there is a relevant community that uh, would, would grant such a right. Do you think the NSA, the Australian equivalent, should have told her that they have been uh, monitoring and keeping this trove? Uh, I don't, that's a, also a tough question. I don't, during the I'm gonna actual right surveillance. There. What are, the, what are yeah. the easy epistemic questions? Give me one. <laughs> give me a lamp. <laughs> uh, Am I an aardvark? I, I mean. <laughs> in, in epistemology? In epistemology. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a vexed field. I agree. It's, it's a <laughs> deep one. All right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, epistemology is typically divided into two sections. You know, one is often called foundational epistemology, and it's like, do you know anything? Mm-hmm. And arguments for skepticism about various kinds of knowledge come in. So do you know anything about the external world? Do you know anything about math? Do you know anything about what other people are thinking and yeah. so on? And you could get anywhere uh, with that? Like, there, <laughs> there's progress to be made on those questions? Well, there, that opens up a separate can of worms. Ah! Is there progress in <laughs> philosophi? You know, ph- does philosophy progress? And there's been a big debate about that. But I, yeah, I, my sense is yes. You c- at least an individual can make progress in their thinking on those issues. And I think we have made some progress. I think you know, tractable questions come when you say, okay, I assume we do have some knowledge. Like yeah. I know that I'm, you know, have a microphone in front of my face. And then you say, well, given that. What sorts of things do I know? Can't I know? And how do we, you know, reason responsibly and and uh, modify our beliefs responsibly so that we don't go on asserting a bunch of stuff that we don't know? And especially now, you know, in the internet age, I think you shouldn't be just asserting something if you don't know it. Yeah. Instead, you can just say, "Well, here's the evidence for the view that I'm tempted to." accept and let everybody else assess that evidence that norm that you should only assert what you know yeah. uh is is best suited to these issues where there's a lot to be lost when you're wrong like 
with Israel and the Palestinians right now. There's so much at stake and people people in these debates just assert a ton of things about the history of the conflict and who's to blame and what and what side and it leads to an impasse where you can't yeah. sway anybody to your position. So in those cases in political discourse and moral discourse in these areas where there's a lot to be lost by getting it wrong and not a much to be gained by just going with your gut those costs of of it being slower and harder to think in those terms are well compensated you know i never thought of it but you're probably right that the world's militants and the world's autocrats probably say you know what you may be right a lot less than the rest of us or than they should <laughs> just doesn't come up yeah, well, that much <laughs> the skepticism and reflection are no part of their cognition it's just not there mm-hmm. then epistemology and distinctively epistemological reflection what do i know how do i know it and interrogating your own evidence, interrogating your own reasoning is a huge part of that. And it's ideally suited to creating uh, moderates, basically. Well, I think I like where this conversation ended up. No, I know I did. Aaron Zimmerman <laughs> teaches philosophy at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Epistemology is his game. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me, Mike. This is a good beat. That's Trey Cool, Green Day's drummer on American Idiot. This is a bad beat. And now the river card. No! Let me set the scene. That is a game of Hold'em Poker. The rules, each player gets two of their own cards, and then everyone shares five community cards. In this game, which was part of the World Series of Poker, but not the main event of the World Series of Poker, one player, Carrie Katz, was dealt a pair of aces. That's the best hand you could get before you see any of the community cards. And what your strategy is there is to try to get everyone else to bet as much money as possible because it's likely you're going to win. And he was great at that. In fact, he got this other guy, Connor Drynan, to go all in. So you're saying to yourself, well, that Connor Drynan character is pretty stupid. Oh, no. Because that guy also with aces also had a pair of aces. It's a long shot. One in a quarter million times do two guys at a table have a pair of aces. But you know what? You play long enough and you see that happen. So when they're actually playing, neither player knows that the other one has a pair of aces. But when poker's on TV, they show the audience what the players have. So there's a lot of, what does he have? What does the other guy have? Let's pretend I don't have a good hand because you have a pair of aces. And then we even have one of the players saying to the other one, Save your money, kid. You can't win every pot. And the other guy is certainly thinking, you are the biggest jerk in the world and you're soon going to lose to my pair of aces. But since they both have a pair of aces, actually that's probably not going to happen. So what happens is at a certain point when everyone has all their money in, that's what it's called all in, everyone shows their cards and they each have aces. So now everyone kind of lets out a sigh of relief and says, all right, we're just going to split the pot. Although there's one thing that could go on, one small possibility. If there are four or five cards of the same suit among the community cards, then one of those players with one of those aces who matches the four cards or five cards of the same suit is going to have a flush. And guess what? Oh my God. It's another heart. This is getting serious for Drynan. We wouldn't be telling this story unless... And now the river card. No! I'm so sorry. Drynan flushed out of this tournament. 
This video went viral. It was shown on ESPN. Millions and millions have seen it. And it was juxtaposed against the headline, Worst Bad Beat Ever. Is it the worst bad beat ever? No, it's crushing for Connor Drynan who lost. But longer shots come in in poker. What makes it maybe the worst beat ever is that the stakes were really high. There were about 18 players left in the hand and the winner gets $16 million. So yeah, it's a crushing, crushing defeat. But you've got to understand about bad beats and you've got to understand what long odds mean. And this brings me to our reactions, our reactions as citizens or regular people or sometimes as elected officials to freak events. Let us consider the downing of Malaysian Air Flight 17. It was brought down by a missile. So now some people are asking, why doesn't every plane, every commercial flight have an anti-missile system on board? In fact, a member of Congress, Steve Israel, is trying to get airlines to adopt this. He says that an anti-missile defense on commercial aircraft is, quote, a common sense safety feature and argues in an op-ed, the expense of installing the system is roughly a million dollars per plane, nearly the same amount as an in-flight entertainment system. Would you rather be assured of your safety while on board or be able to watch your favorite TV show? Guess what? False choice. First, it's not either or. No one's going to take out an in-flight system to put an anti-missile defense system. But you have to realize how unbelievably rare attacks on civilian aircraft are and how even more rare than that are successful attacks. In fact, if you divide the number of flights ever by the number of successful missile attacks, there was this one over Ukraine and there was a U.S. mistaken attack on an Iranian aircraft, you have much longer odds than that poker hand we just played. Of course, keeping people alive on an aircraft is, in a way, like that poker hand, which we called the worst beat because, quote, the stakes were so high. So I understand we're talking about human life. The stakes are extremely high, but that doesn't change the odds. And I guarantee you one thing. The next time that player who got beat, Connor Dryden, the next time he's in a hand with a pair of aces before the flop, he's going to do the exact same thing he did last time. He's going to try to get all of his opponent's money in the pot. And he won't be wrong because one freakishly bad result doesn't change the odds and it shouldn't change your strategy. And the same with outfitting U.S. airplanes at the cost of a million dollars each with an as yet unproven anti-missile system that the odds suggest will never be used. that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, is want to play suited connectors in middle position. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, will overbet the pot when he senses a donkey has flopped rags. You could listen to us in iTunes or listen to us in SoundCloud. SoundCloud's great. You could sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. Our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. We are on facebook.com slash slate gist. We have over a thousand likes and would encourage you to like us on Facebook. Facebook. Of course, Phil Helmuth, the self-styled bad boy of poker, has 75,000 likes, which will be fine. He's a famous guy, but his entire thing is to be unlikable. That's his brand. He can't help but getting 75,000 likes. Email the gist at slate.com. So I once pushed a fish out in late position after I misread my hand, and instead of catching a set in the turn, I actually had a one out for a gut shot straight. Funny story, right? No? Well, anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs>